Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored, soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Over the last few decades, there's been a huge shift in terms of how we think about people who aren't like us. People whose brains are just different. Thanks to the pioneering work of people like Oliver Sacks and Steve Silberman, we now understand that it doesn't really make sense anymore to talk about a normal brain or an average brain. Sometimes we still use the word typical to describe the brains of most people. But what if there's no such thing as the brains of most people? What if the whole concept needs to be tossed out? Well, in this episode, I talked to cognitive neuroscientist Chantelle Pratt. She's a professor at the University of Washington. She has appointments in the departments of psychology, neuroscience, linguistics, and the Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences. So her work is really interdisciplinary. But that's not the only pioneering thing about her. She's also been studying the biological bases of individual differences in cognition for the better part of the last couple decades. When a lot of cognitive neuroscientists thought there was really no future in individual differences, Chantelle kept going on. And now she's written a book about it, capturing her research along with those of others. It's called The Neuroscience of You, How Every Brain is Different and How to Understand Yours. Now, I want to give you fair warning and say that this interview gets a little bit inside baseball when it comes to neuroscience, (laughs) but I just couldn't help myself. I'm so excited about this direction, and I wanted to share that excitement with you. Chantelle Pratt, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. I'm so excited to talk about this topic because it's one that kind of has seeped into my own life and my own thinking a little bit to my surprise. Um, Although now that I think about it more and more and more, I feel like it's been there all the time. And uh, so I'm going to unpack that and let you know that, you know, my interest in neuroscience started with Oliver Sacks, who was, you know, a neurologist and author who really was one of the first people, I think, to... um, 
tell the stories of people whose brains work differently in a way that anyone could find interesting. It wasn't just like a kind of freak show. It was the humanity of the person. And we all saw ourselves in his case studies. You know, but it comes out of this this history of neuroscience where so much work was done on um, looking at people whose brains were damaged or, you know, somehow different or disordered, and that we should understand the normal brain, quote unquote, by looking at what happens when things go awry. And in the last couple decades, and your work especially, has shown us just how misguided that approach is, since there is no such thing as a normal brain. (laughs) Right, that's right. Yeah, so why don't you tell me about sort of like, that was my journey, that's kind of how I came to it. How, How did you come to this understanding that really this focus on normal is misguided because you've been doing this for decades. It's not like, you know, you're a newly graduated PhD student. Okay. Something that you said in the beginning is such a good way of describing how I feel about this. And you sort of said it was there all along, but I'm just kind of becoming aware of it. And I think in some ways, everybody knows that there's something different about their brain. Every person knows this. Like, like how many times have you heard somebody in casual conversation say, oh, that's just not the way I'm wired. That's an understanding that I work or don't work some way that reflects the mechanics of my brain, right? So it seems so obvious. And to me, as you mentioned, from day one, this was the thing that kind of captivated me. And I'll go into that in a little bit more detail. But So when I proposed writing this book, and I can talk to you later about why, you know, everyone kept saying the surprising truth about how every brain is different. I was like, I can't write this. Like, I, it's not surprising to me. It's not, this is not surprising. I don't think it's surprising to anybody really, although we don't have the science and the language to talk about it, right? Like, I don't think it's a surprising truth that your brain is not exactly like mine. So I got my first job in a neuroscience lab because of a particular qualification I had, and that is they were looking for someone who was good with infants. And as it so turned out, a teenage pregnancy left me very skilled with infants. I had my own, you know, and I literally showed up, talk about happy accidents, right? To be like, have my moment, happy little accident. I literally showed up with a baby on my hip. Like, I'm really good at babies. Like, I can do this. And I started working in a lab. My job was to put these electrode caps on infants, which is like a swim cap. And any person who's ever tried to get a kid to wear something on their head as part of a Halloween (laughs) costume or something understands that this is literally one of the hardest jobs in neuroscience because once the goo goes on and the kid pulls the hat off, it's game over. So you really have to be like, oh, my party hat, this is great. You know, there was a lot of non-neuroscience skills involved in that first job. But, you know, we were studying development at the time and we were looking at humans from six weeks through adulthood. And the kind of questions that the lab was asking were, how does this cognitive ability of interest, neuroscientific signal of interest change across the lifespan? But there are these points, especially like language development around one and a half years old, for instance, there are a lot of other things where it was so salient to me how different everyone at that point in time was. And for me, the differences were not only how much language do they know, 
what do their brains look like when they're listening to stories? But <laughs> will they sit still? How, how, how do they interact with adults? Like, you know, um, introverted, extroverted, comfortable. Are they in new situations? Like in that moment, it was so salient for me. And of course, I had my own little experiment at home. Right. And so probably the luckiest thing that ever happened to me is that I had a child with her father's temperament. So she's like incredibly chill. And probably also being raised by a single mom, I brought her everywhere. So it's like new things, like I'm just going along. So she was my guinea pig, for lack of a better word. I mean, I would bring her into lab. We're like, we're going to try all these techniques because she was so happy to be there and like eat goldfish and play with stickers, whatever. (laughs) I don't care what you're doing to my head right now, mom. It's fine. And so we brought her in and piloted her, not only me, but pretty much everyone in this developmental lab would bring Jasmine. And I have videos where she would be sitting there for two hours, just a little toddler, you know, like, oh, that's a bit, you know, pointing to boxes or whatever the game was. But when I first looked at her brainwave, so we were recording electrical activity at the scalp in this experiment. You, we would ask the parents uh, to compile a checklist of what words a child knew. And then we would play sound clips of them hearing words that the parents say they knew and words that the parents say they don't know. And looking at the electrical response of their brains all over the scalp to kind of figure out what does it look like when a, you know, six month old who's just heard words or a, you know, 18 month old who can say some of these words or, you know, a 24 month old who has expertise in a lot of these things. What does it look like when they listen to these words? And much to my surprise, so Jasmine was, I think, around 17 months old the first time I brought her into the lab. The signal coming from her brain to words that she understood was stronger over the right hemisphere than the left. And this is completely opposite from what we expect. Um, Kids start out like bilateral, and then as they become expert talkers, it kind of moves to the left hemisphere. And my uh, supervisor at the time was like, is there any chance that she's left-handed? Turns out this is rare even for left-handedness, but it was before I had noticed that she was left-handed. It's before the time that people typically see strong preferences in, in infants, but lo and behold, she was left-handed. So it was, And then I ran all these other tests on her and everything was was swapped. So this kind of obviously kicked things into gear for me. I'm like, how much about my own child And the things I notice about her are different because her laterality is literally reversed, mirror reversed from the vast majority of the people on the planet. So I think I was already on that path. And I think my sort of impetus to study the brain came, you know, I started out pre-med and I learned about in a very sort of last inning social science class I had to take, I learned about Phineas Gage and the way that he's this sort of, you know, infamous railway worker story who had a a railway spike blown up and out the right frontal lobe of his brain. And it made him impulsive for lack of a better word. But, you know, so I was already on that. This is an organ that makes you, you, this is your identity. I think I was already on that. Then starting to get experience that sort of just scaled up. And from the time I was working in that lab and from my first published papers there where I started to look at what does word learning look like in this 18 to 20 month old age and how do fast word learners look different than slow word learners. Even though I've done a lot of different things, like I've used a lot of different technologies, I've studied a lot of different populations, I guess I've always been there. Like 
my interest is to understand the individual, the mind-brain relationship at the level of the individual. And just to make this like, to take this back into a nerdy science context, because maybe the average listener doesn't know, and maybe you think this is fine, but I think it's really strange. Like the protocol for studying human behavior or neuroscience or cognitive neuroscience, the typical thing we do is we take a group of people, usually young, white, Western college undergraduates, and we say we take 20 or 50 people, and then we put them in a, we record brain activity while they do two different things. Let's say they're reading stories where all of the information is there or reading a story where they have to make an inference or reading a sentence where all the nouns are concrete or reading a sentence where all the nouns are abstract, like tiny little manipulations to what they do, right? And then we average across what every person in the group does. And we look at the difference between those two conditions. We say the brain works like this because when you take this whole group of people and have them do two different things, there's this tiny two to 3% change in their brain activity. And we're like, whoa, this is where inferences happen. This is where concrete imagery happens. But I have argued that if you want to understand the relationship between the mind and the brain, you need to know why two different people doing the same task use different parts of the brain. Like, why isn't that yeah. exactly mm-hmm. as important in sort of the science or the theories? And it isn't. It's not commonly, it's not a common paradigm. It's just we average across people, we, t- we treat that as statistical noise. You know, part of it, I think, is because it's almost the difference between art and science or humanities and science, where in, you know, in science, I like to say, the what's the difference? One difference is that in science, we try to extract general principles that apply to everyone. And in art or in the humanities, we try to use the individual experience to illuminate what's universal. And I think there is this fundamental difference in terms of like, if you're objective, then no matter who you put in front of that scanner, they should be de-individualized. They should always look the same at that one kind of scientific truth point. Mm-hmm. Gosh, what a great way to say that. And I, I think that's exactly correct. And I think because of that, we know a lot about vision. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Because it's, because it's kind of the same. It's, yeah, it's kind of the same. It's easily mapped. You know, there's a lot of, but even that now we're learning about, like, I just recently discovered aphantasia um, when I was doing this Oliver Sacks podcast. And we were, we were this, it's this like, there are some people who just cannot imagine something visually in their mind's eye. And like Ed Catmull, like the co the co-founder of Pixar is such a person. Like he doesn't have a visual imagination in the way that many of us do. And I think that that's just fascinating. It's like that's visual cortex. And then there are people like my husband or other, you know, others who actually think totally visually and don't like it's not, they don't have auditory, you know, and that's unthinkable to me. And it's so funny. I think there was a a tweet about this, you know, in 2019 or something that, you know, went viral where they were like, you know, some people think totally in, you know, visual codes and some people think in, you know, auditory and both, and most of them don't know each other exists. I of course knew this because my husband is the opposite of me. And I'll always ask him like people like that, when you hear like uh, in a movie, you hear, you know, they sort of depict the internal dialogue or, you know, in the book, you read about somebody thinking them to yourself, you know, at first he's like, isn't that like schizophrenia? Is that weird to hear a voice in your head? Is this just, 
you know, artistic license. Like, no, that is me. Like I have my brain codes everything verbally and like runs it through that system. And so I'll ask him like, when you're thinking about like an action or a feeling or like a scientific theory, how does it work? And he's like, oh, like a PowerPoint. <laughs> like, what's it? You're like, you're thinking about a feeling or whatever. It's like a PowerPoint. You're like, whoa, pre-, you know, so he told me, um, I think I put this in the book that verbal thinkers have consciousness podcasts and visual thinkers have like consciousness Netflix on mute. <laughs> but that, but that tells you something inherent about the code of thought. I think that's like one of the things that I want to understand the most, right? Because whatever your brain imagines, whatever code your brain chooses for like imagining this, imagining for pulling the clutch on reality, it must tell you something deep about their preferred way of representing information. Yeah. And, and, and then, yeah. And, and, you know, Temple Grandin, who wrote this great book, Thinking in Pictures, you know, is another example, perhaps, of someone who, whose mind maybe works even more differently, you know, in, in, in these fundamental ways. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit before we get into like some of the, you know, research and, and sort of give us an understanding of like, how do we think about these individual differences? Tell us scientifically how we should study them. Because I think that this is something that maybe people aren't really sure of how to do, given that we don't want to get, I mean, there's still anic data, right? Like an N of one is not a study. So how do you design a study to track some of these individual differences and still remain robust and have the power to find what you're looking for, et cetera? What an excellent question. I think the answer probably in the answer is probably the reason why most people aren't doing it this. And that's because they're very expensive, right? Like if you want to understand the individual, you need a lot more participants. And in my line of work, an hour of putting someone in the scanner is $600, right? So if you want to take 25 people and pretend that they're one person, it's one thing. But if you want to trust that the feature that of interest that you're studying is not some idiosyncratic thing, you need a lot more participants. That's That's number one. But that in and of itself is not the answer. I think that the challenge and this is a great time to talk about responsibility. I think there are good reasons that people don't study individual differences because who is going to be responsible for the way somebody interprets that data? Like your brain, different brains work in different ways. It is so evocative for people to say, this is better or worse. This is genetic. You were born like this. This is fixed. And like misinterpreting that just because your brain makes you this way, which is always true does not mean that either you were born this way or that this is an immutable property of you, right? A brain is changing in every instant of your life. You are not this, I am not the same as I was when I started this podcast and you blew, you've already blown my mind a couple of times. So there are new connections forming and ways of talking about things. And, or, but some of the really interesting things that we want to study about a participant it could be something like, um, you know, you hear about the 10,000 words, like how much, how much linguistic experience you have. It could be, what is my declarative memory or what is my associative memory? Like, like how well can I just, you know, find new pieces of information together? It could be, um, how does the number of books? I don't know. I'm thinking of very nerdy things, but basically all of the interesting things we want to know about a person are true when they walk in the door. We can't manipulate the things that we want to study with individual differences in the lab. And what that means is every 
thing that might go along with having a great, like, let's say I'm studying associative memory. I picked a really boring thing, but like, let's say a person is really good at making new connections, right? Like this person might be more curious by nature. They might have read more. They might, you know, have a more Wikipedia-like database and then they come into the lab and they do X. And you don't really know without really big data and trying to parse all of these things out, like which aspect of their environment, their experiences might be driving that effective interest, right? So for the, for the majority of the things we want to study, we can't manipulate them. We don't create a person who's a good, you know, learns in this environment or that environment. And so we don't really, cause and effect is really hard. You're doing correlational studies for the most part. And so I think to do it very well and very responsibly, you either need to try and account for and control as many things. I mean, the individual space just blows up really quickly. I gave you a couple super boring examples. You can imagine how something like gender or SES or something like that, like, you know, that's why like when I hear about like so many gender or sex studies in the brain and I'm like, what are they actually studying? What is their sample size? Like, you know, this is going from a one size fits all approach to neuroscience to a two size fits all approach to neuroscience, which is almost worse. It's all, it's definitely worse if it's not done well. So longitudinal studies can also like, you know, creating an experience in our lab, we do things like um, scan the brains before and after they learn a second language or programming or, you know, so like something you can do is like, look at, you know, the person still has all of these variables and now we've controlled some aspect of their experience, you know, looking longitudinally at brains or trying to sort of co-vary out all of this stuff. But then when you try and co-vary out all this stuff, you need to, you need a lot of participants. So, and then you need to think about demographics and representation, right? Like I really think what we need is um, for our funding agencies, for our journals to be asking people to report demographics so that not just sex, which is sometimes gender and not sex. Right. Or education. And age. Yeah. But like, richer demographics so that the person reading, even if you're doing the one size fits all, you can go, this is like a, also the size is absolutely not representative of me in any of these aspects. So I think we need funding agencies that appreciate that this is a really important part of the puzzle and are willing to support this. I think we could do multi-site studies where it's not all one lab, right? Like, you know, we're collecting data in five different places, which also, you know, increases the diversity and the generalizability. And I think we need um, reporting that requires us to tell who are we making these inferences about, but it it is really complicated. And I think in the book, I kind of acknowledge this, that I'm not going to write off on my high horse and say like individual differences are the only thing that matter because, because of all these reasons, because it is hard to do it responsibly and accurately. Your space coast vacation is preparing for liftoff. Start counting down now. 10, 9, 8, 7, it's time for a beach vacay that feels like heaven. 6, 5, 4, come explore Melbourne and the beaches. 3, 2, 1, it's time for some rocket-filled fun. Count down to your best beach vacation ever on Florida's Space Coast. Launch your planning now at visitspacecoast.com.
I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. One thing that that you mentioned, I think, you know, just like the myth of the quote unquote normal brain exists, the myth of the my brain is wired and I can't change it thing is is strong, too. And I think that is one of the pitfalls of sort of labeling people with a kind of brain, even when it's individualized. And I think, as you mentioned, too, you know, I do see a potential future using the tools of big data, using things like the UK Biobank, which is this big repository of like hundreds of thousands of scans of, of individuals. And I know there are a number of similar efforts going on in the US and elsewhere where people are pooling data, they're pooling neuroimaging studies as a way of maybe getting around this issue of like, if you're one lab and you need to scan a thousand people, that's prohibitively expensive and time consuming. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about like where you stand on that future of neuroscience where, you know, the data sets are huge. They're not coming from the same sources. Um, you know, we have issues when we're trying to compare scans across people. People think, oh, they're always going to be the same. You put them in a scanner and, you know, you're going to have the same. And that's not, that's not it at all. Like there's all this. First of all, scanners have different strengths and weaknesses. They have different signal to noise ratios. Some of them blow out, you know, the middle part of the brain because of the ear canals, depending on how they were set. And then you've got to strip the skull off the images. You've got to do all these other processing things that also like alter the images. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where are we in 2022 in terms of giving people even you know, people who don't necessarily have access to a scanner, access to the data from all of these studies? And is it practical to think that that's something that we could do in the future? Or are there just too many issues with the data that's already been collected? Sorry, this is a bit inside baseball. <laughs> no, I was like, I know. I was like, man, she knows all the secrets. Like, what, you know, politically correct answer, honest answer. I'm going to give you the honest answer. So my husband does all of his research on public data right now. Like they do computational models. They, you know, they create data and they run a thousand people through and try and like figure out what works best. And I think that there is, there are a lot of opportunities. These, these databases already exist and they're publicly available. Some are like publicly available with different levels of gateways. Like you have to email them and say, I'm a scientist, which I don't know why. I'm not sure why. What would a non-scientist do that would hurt it? I don't know. Like, I don't, I'm not sure why. Why What what makes a person a scientist? Like, do you, is it, do you need a PhD or is a master's good enough? Or like, I mean, if they can run the freaking software that you need to do all of these things, like what, and what are they going to, you know, anyway. If you can code in R or MATLAB, like you're a scientist. (laughs) Yeah, you're probably like, 
as well positioned to make some breakthrough on this as anyone else, right? But I'm not sure about the quality, like the quality of these big data things. You know, you might say, oh, Chantel is a control freak. But when I bring my my participants in, you know, I'm not running them for four hours. Like some of these big data things, like a person is in the scanner. I guess this goes back to me thinking about the actual human and their actual experience, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. It's like a lot of these big data sets are four hours of data. So maybe they came in twice and did two hours of laying still in this tube doing the the the, the worst combination of games, you know, tasks that are like both very boring and hard, like frustrating and taxing. Hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, and then you see their brain and it's just like, you know, it's like, and you don't, and it doesn't <laughs> surprise me. This is not a person that's like in there and there's, I want to play. It's not like they're playing their favorite game or they're like, you know, trying really hard to pass the test. And, and so, you know, even, you know, in our experience, like, you know, even at the resting state data, like when they're just mind wandering, doing nothing at the beginning and end of those long scans, they look really different. Mm. And then again, like in my experience, the individual differences stuff that I want to know about, like language history, or I don't know, like, again, I want to know like what they can actually do when they're trying and not laying in a tube for two hours. Like the individual differences data in the databases I've looked at is not as rich and, and interesting as I want. It's never, they never have like anything about the participants I want. It's always like age, sex or gender, maybe years of education, the end, like maybe language status, maybe it would say native English speaker, which they almost all are, almost all are. And I'm like, wow, what about all the people on the planet who don't speak English? Like, wouldn't it be interesting to know how their brains work? Like, So I think we're moving toward um, protocols where you publish a little study and you make your data available. And so a creative person could be like, these five people did different things, but they all had a baseline that's kind of interesting and comparable. And I'm going to pull it together. But maybe just having a task. I I just, I guess we wouldn't agree on what the interesting tasks are either, right? So I think the long answer to my question is all the things you said about data quality, totally true. And then, you know, in terms of just mechanics and scanner and things like that, but also data quality in terms of what is the participant actually do? Like, what is their experience? Are they trying? Is this reflective of their capabilities? Do you care about that? So I think big data is great, but I get concerned when people say like, oh, this study only has 20 participants. And I'm like, yeah, but each of my 20 participants came into the lab for 20 hours. Like I have a really good representation of how this person works. Like I tested them over and over and over and over and over. And for that person, I'm very confident that I've captured their way of, you know, thinking, feeling and behaving in this context. Whereas, you know, if you have 2000 participants that laid in the scanner for two hours, yeah, it's not, I think they're complementary. I think we need both. And I think open access is, is going to be the answer, but maybe not the only answer. And maybe we need some, I don't think it's been created for individual differences purposes. So maybe we'll think more about characterizing the individual and characterizing the individual experience, you know, so that we can kind of weigh that a little better. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting. There's also this dichotomy of like, well, so what, what, let's say you learn about how this one person's brain is person comes into your lab, as you mentioned, you have like, you see them multiple, multiple times, you get a really great, let's say, like, you know, in the future, you have like a perfect version of how their mind and brain, how their mind works. uh, And, uh, you know, as a result of their brain function, 
How useful is that for someone else? Because that's a lot of resources going into one person understanding their own brain. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about sort of like the extrapolation and how, I mean, and this is, I think, where the art comes in, because of course we watch movies and the movies we love are the ones with the quirkiest, most specific stories that are never going to happen to us and we're captivated and fascinated. And I feel like that's a lot what of what your work is doing. It's like put, putting this like <laughs> hu- very human interest in specificity and a story into this neuroscience field that so often avoids that. Yeah. Thank you. That's cool. I like that idea. Um, I think your question about how you didn't say this, but I would say like, how useful is it to know about one person? Like that, you know, at the opposite end, like where and how does Mm -hmm. that generalize? And I think that the way I like to think about this, and I'm thinking like on the fly here, so hopefully I'll be articulate, is that what we're going to learn are what are the, like you might study individuals deeply. And as you do this over and over, you start to learn what are the parameters? Like what are the wheels that you turn? You know, it's not, it is certainly not unidimensional. Normal is such a, I think the most damaging thing about the idea of normal is that there's one way and that it's like very, it sort of flattens the concept, right? Like if a brain had axes, I don't think, you know, you know, there are 80 billion neurons. I don't think there are 80 billion, anywhere near 80 billion axes that we're different on. I think there is, you know, at the end of the day, the brain is insanely complicated and magnificent and magical, but there are a finite number of ways that it solves problems. There are only a certain number of problems that it has to solve, sort of, you know, uh, making sense of incomplete data, prioritizing, learning, you know, they're not anywhere near millions of different ways of having a brain. And so I think that as we get a, a richer characterization of individuals, we start to then understand that parameter space. And then when you understand that parameter space and you go like, oh, when this aspect changes in this dimension, we see people performing well in these kinds of circumstances, or we see people whose, you know, brains do this with information or solve problems in this way. And, and then you can build a model of a new brain that you've never seen before, right? Right. If you've got the right number of parameters. And on the, on the other end, it's like, what we have been doing, which is like, well, let's find the things that are true of everyone, or let's find the level of explanation at which we can feel confident that this will be true of everyone. Then it's like, how much of your behavior does that actually explain? Of anyone's behavior, could that actually explain? And it's so small. I mean, we're still, even even the behavioral science fields are really bad at predicting behavior. I mean, and I think, again, this is because when you take the one size fits all, I mean, anyone with siblings or anyone like anyone who's been awake and behaving in their lives, just know that people work differently. You know, you know it. Yeah. So then it's like, how do we bridge that gap between like moving forward and the sort of things that are the principles that are true of all humans or even all brains? I mean, think about the neuroscientists. You know, I would say the majority of neuroscience research is not done on humans. It's done on zebrafish or nematodes or fruit flies because there's enough in common with their brains and ours that we can learn something about, you know, memory or, you know, and that just blows my mind, right? So when you think about the fact that we're studying roundworms <laughs> to figure out how we work, it's not that, then it doesn't feel that bad that we're just averaging across people to figure out how we work, right? But at the end of the day, do you want someone operating on your brain based on how they think 
people work on average? Or do you want them to know how your brain, you know, like for me, it's like when it comes to like education, parenting, treatment, medicine, like we can't accept that this is true. And I can't tell you how many, I mean, how many physicians, even like neurosurgeons who, I mean, they observe and they, you know, if they go in and do brain mapping, they can see this, but they will still like, especially like medical doctors will still tell you like language lives in the left hemisphere. And I'm like, Ooh, not my experience, not only just for people like, you know, my daughter, Jasmine, who are switched, but in my experience, looking at individual brain scans, most people use both hemispheres to understand language to some degree. Yeah, I mean, certain aspects of it, for sure. And, you know, and I think what I get really excited about is that some of these ideas are trickling down now to education and places where, you know, so much of our society was built for one type of brain. And kids whose brains are dyslexic or who have ADHD or um, are on the autism spectrum or, you know, and and even the variability among, you know, kids with that kind of diagnosis is so great that thinking that one type of curriculum, which was developed for students, even at a single point in time, right? Like even like forget the, you know, the the fact that a lot of the curriculum was developed for, you know, 10 years ago or even more. But it makes me excited to think that now we're not necessarily condemning a child whose brain happens to be wired differently to the frustration of being in a classroom that is not built for them you know, in which the entire educational system is 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 not going to help them develop their to their best potential. Yeah, I know. It's like, if you think about how long our brains, the human brain has been evolving, and the sort of how weird our the particular environment that we're operating in now is, I think this is kind of what you're appreciating. You're talking about the last 10 years or whatever. But just, I think that the um, new appreciation for diversity at least I hope is cracking people's minds open a little bit so they can really appreciate all of the things that we think are successful or all of the environments that we think are, you are successful if your brain works in this very narrow environment. We're just missing out on so much talent and opportunity because, you know, you mentioned ADHD. And I think that the last, the last statistic I read is one in nine or one in 10 or 9%, almost one in 10 kids, 9.6% or something of kids in America get diagnosed with ADHD or are, have the, the symptoms to be diagnosed. And so you have to think about back to that idea of normal and abnormal. There are kind of two things underneath there. One is typical and atypical. Right. So some something abnormal can can be just because this is like, you know, less than 5% of the population or something like that. And then there's something that can be functional or dysfunctional. But again, that idea of functional is really a match between that brain and the environment you're putting in. And, you know, you 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 hear things like 50% of adults, you know, um, suffer from a depressive episode. That's not atypical. Right. Right. And so like if half of the people have brains that work this way. At some point, this cannot be anything other than a mismatch between the way this brain works, what it needs, and the environment we're putting it in, right? And so, like, it's so, you know, I like the idea of organically focused, which is a term I've used for people who have ADHD. It's so obvious to think about if you're walking around in, in the world, why it would be good to notice when something like a squirrel, squirrel, you know, right. why it would be important to notice when things change in the environment. And not be able to just operate based on your goals at the, you know, like turn down all of the surprising things around you 
just so you can focus on your internally driven goals. And in fact, when you are in that kind of goal-directed mode that everyone thinks is great, this is like in control, paying attention, you are missing things in the environment, you know? So there's, there are research like, you know, using the attentional blink and other things where you have people do a target detection task. And when you're driven by these internal goals, you will literally miss things coming at in front of you. You won't see it, right? So like, obviously there's a reason that nature selected for brains that can see things even that they don't expect, right? Or they're not looking for, especially if they can eat you or you can eat the it, you know? So yeah, it's like a certain percentage of the population. Because if you imagine like the social side of evolution, where you have like a whole bunch of individuals of our species living together, you don't want maybe all of them to be that distractible. You probably want a majority <laughs> of them to stay on task. But you do want to have a few who are vigilant and who are thinking differently and who can come up with a solution to a problem that no one else thought of. Right, totally. And yeah, and I think that your insight about the environment or like what we're putting in front of them this is the way to go. This is, I think like for me, most of my research right now is actually funded by the Navy and the cognitive science of learning. And it's really interesting because the Navy has moved away from this model of what they call the gray beard. Like everyone learned from an apprentice Mm. to learning from, you know, people learn how to park an aircraft carrier through VR or like learn a, f- a second language through, you know, this virtual immer- cultural immersion software or learn how to do maintenance or how to, you know, problem solve in, in, in a fire on a ship or on a submarine or whatever. They're learning all of this in, in the classroom. And so it's interesting, you know, this is not only happening, you know, in children. I think it's most important to start there. But they're, you know, they're researching how to figure out how different brains work, you know, for like redoing assessment, which I think is really important. Yeah. And then the goal is like, how do we put people in front of the information that's going to, in a way that maximizes their success? So in your ideal world, let's say we project forward 20, 30 years into neuroscience and into your career, and you look back now, what do you hope the average, no, I'm not going to use the word normal, um, but the person on the street who hasn't, you know, immersed themselves in neuroscience, what do you hope that they now think about in terms of their brains and, you know, who they are? I would love for the idea of average to completely disappear. And I would like people to think of themselves like these are my aspects or these are my axes of of information processing, right? Because I just think we, at the end of the day, even emotion is like a response to some kind of information for, I think this is probably me, but I take really hard things like the social problems. And I'm like, at the end of the day, these are networks of neurons and chemicals, you know, floating around. And these are my ways of being, these are my brain's way of processing information in the world, making decisions, driving me around in a way that maximizes success in the way that my brain has defined. So I would love it if people understand that there are different axes of being or problem solving or information processing in the brain and that we all fall on a continuum somewhere and that the result of what makes you you is really the combination of these things. Like you can't understand a person even by taking any one of those axes out of its context. And the context is the other axes in that person and that person's life experiences and the task, the environment that you're putting that person in. Like me my success is defined by this mix of all of my different ways of 
all of my brain's different ways of being, plus the situation I'm putting it it in right now. That's great. And so if our listeners want to learn more, um, I recommend they pick up your book, The Neuroscience of You, How Every Brain is Different and How to Understand Yours, which, you know, Adam Grant has called something like the smartest, clearest, funniest book about neuroscience that he's read. And that's high praise because, um, you know, he also writes good books. (laughs) (laughs) So Chantel Pratt, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Royhalla, Michael Galgul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Lamaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.